thank you everyone for joining us. I'm going to introduce our, our next speaker, but just to refresh the topic of the show, which is we're exploring sustainability transition themes around the world with different participants in the transition, different leaders in the transition. Our first guest here is Rob Kaplan. Rob is the founder and CEO of Circulate Capital, which is an impact investment fund fully focused on ocean plastic. Before Circulate Capital, Rob was founder and managing director of Closed Loop Partners, an impact investing firm focused on the circular economy. Prior to that, he had a career in sustainability at major corporations, including Walmart. He's a frequent columnist at Forbes and other major publications on topics as diverse and wide ranging as recycling, recyclability, ocean plastic, ESG, sustainability, all stripes, really. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Seth. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Rob, let me kind of throw you a, a softball question just to get us started. So I, I think that many of our listeners will be only loosely familiar with the terms circular economy and probably have a, a slightly you know, abstract idea of what that means. I, I know a little from some of my work that circular economy actually has a pretty robust uh, methodology and, and definition set behind it. So I was wondering if you could maybe just introduce us to the concept of circularity, what we mean by it, what closed loop is, mm -hmm. and you know, even straying into the technical side, what this territory really means. Yeah, it's a topic that really took hold about a decade ago. Uh, and there's a woman named Ellen MacArthur, who's a famous sailor in the UK, and she uh, sailed around the world. And one of the things that came out of that work and that journey was a vision around the circular economy. And actually, McKinsey was a big part of that coining that phrase. But the idea is, is, is a lot of waste to value, right? So all of the resources that we use to make things, whether, and I'll go into more detail on it, but how do we keep those resources in play so that they are the resources we can use to make new things endlessly, as opposed to needing a linear economy, which is more of a take, make, waste approach. I think, you know, it gets a lot more complicated than that. And one of the big things that circular economy really did is take it out of the idea of just a product that's recyclable and think about it at a macroeconomic level of all of the resources we spend across all of the industries in the world. What if we took those resources and continuously were able to reuse them and the value that would create? And it's quite significant. And it also cuts across so many other issues we care about, like climate and ocean health and social of social issues as well. I think the only other key point that I keep in mind is a lot of people try and think about how you're dividing between organic, natural nutrients and technical nutrients. So, you know, food and agriculture versus plastics and how reusing those materials are, are tighter ends of the loop and, and recycling are the loosest ends of those loops. And as, as a bit of an infographic junkie, uh, Rob, one of the things that I really like out of that Ellen MacArthur work is the butterfly chart. Uh, and anyone who's interested can kind of probably Google EMF butterfly chart and, and find it. Yep. But it, it really lays out that sort of technical loop or technical side of the loop and then the bio side of the loop. Yeah. So I, I think it's a fascinating thing for anyone to look up. When you think of a closed loop, like a, either a system or a closed loop product, if there is such a thing, what, what do you think about? Yeah. And so for us, you know, we are investing at a much more micro level, right? I think one of the things about circular economy as a concept is uh, it is macroeconomic. And so you think about it kind of in, you know, global context of trade, whereas when you're investing in a company, it's very micro. It's, you know, within that business, are they creating a closed loop product? We invested in a company in India called Lucro that has a closed loop system as part of their business model where they sell plastic products 
into the automobile servicing industry. And they started taking those products back and recycling them in their own supply chain to make those same products again. And they did it because it was cheaper for them to take it back and recycle it and reuse it than it was for them to have to make it from scratch again. And that's, a, I think, a great example of, of how you um, can keep an item, a product in a, in a closed loop system. And Rob, one of the things that I really love about Circulate Capital is that you have a, a very tight niche that you operate in, right? The ocean plastic niche is a, a massive topic from the perspective of news and kind of publicity and, and general public awareness. As an investment theme, however, you're, you're probably the only guys to be specializing in this in this space. And I was just wondering, like, from a personal journey perspective, what is it that brought you to this this place? Yeah. So my background's in corporate. I spent about 10 years in the beverage industry. And then I was at Walmart, where I led supply chain investment programs and was responsible for sustainable packaging globally for the company. And that's really where I started getting into the, the recycling and circular economy world. We got really interested in how if we improve the recycled content of every package on the shelf, we could also improve the carbon footprint of every package on the shelf. And that, that led me down this journey that ended up in helping co-found closed loop partners and creating a circulate capital. Uh, the topic has evolved a lot over the last few years. Um, this was back in 2017. I was at closed loop and uh, ocean plastic was kind of a blip on the radar. And then there was a study that came out that found that most of the plastic that gets into the ocean comes from just a handful of countries in South and Southeast Asia. And if we invest in waste and recycling infrastructure here, uh, we could cut that flow of plastic pollution in half. Actually, I think McKinsey was responsible for that work too. And we, you know, I was in this unique position where I had actually been working on this topic. Uh, a number of our corporate partners had asked us to think about an emerging market strategy. And when that report came out, and then there were a bunch of other things that happened too around that time. The, there was some social media. There was this video of a turtle with a straw up its nose that went totally viral. And then like the Queen of England banned straws at the palace. And then like David Attenborough came out and said, enough is enough for the first time ever. And suddenly it was a top priority. It was on the top of minds for CEOs and for governments, but also for consumers uh, around the world, unlike it had ever been. And I think you know, having worked in the environmental sustainability space for 20 years, I've never seen a topic go from zero to 60 that fast. And I kind of found myself in this unique position where I had a strategy ready to go. I thought I had the partners that were ready to back us to do it. And so, you know, for me, I've always looked for where I can make the most impact. That's how I've made every career decision along the way. And when this one started coming together, I decided to take the leap and go for it. I think that's fantastic to hear, Rob. As a small side note, the, the last report you mentioned, I was one of the authors there of the, the Stemming the Tide piece. So your fault. And it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was a really exciting piece of work to do. And I think that our original idea was that, you know, going into that piece of work, that we felt there would be a way to valorize the waste. And if we create enough value in, in, in the waste by either some sorts of subsidies or pull mechanism, then the problem sort of solves itself. And of course, you realize that it's, it's really much more complicated than that. And a lot of the solutions end up being in, as you say, better waste management systems and also better packaging. And more recently, a client of mine gave me a really interesting little factoid, which is, in a, a 25 euro bottle of whiskey, about 80% of the emissions will probably come from the bottle. 
and about 50 cents of the value is the payment that goes to the bottle maker. And so if you think about what it might take to produce a more sustainable bottle, you know, it might need doubling of that 50, 50 cents, but it's not actually a big increase on the, on the cost of the, 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 the product as, as an end product. Yeah. I just wanted to There's ask a lot you of also thinking about, so. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Different exactly, than right? Exactly. And at the same time, it's kind of, you know, in many ways, a slightly more premium product. And so you'd imagine that people are a bit happier to pay a bit more uh, for it to be, let's say, guilt-free. Just thinking of this packaging space and material choices in general, what do you think the spectrum looks like in moving from uh, less to more circular? Are there any kinds of substrates that are universally a bad idea if you're a, an FMCG and others that are universally, you know, good and better for the environment. Is there space in between? Yeah. How do you kind of look at that? I don't really believe in like universally good or bad. I mean, is you've probably been in this space long enough. There's always trade-offs, you know, and actually when you start getting prescriptive about it, you end up having a lot of unintended consequences that are sort of lock you into things that aren't necessarily better in the long run. And we've seen that happen and especially with material choice. You know, I used to do a lot of sustainable chemistry work. And uh, when you start banning chemicals, you know, that, that you feel are bad, it means that the alternatives or the replacements might be worse. And you don't know. And you have to be really careful about that. In the packaging and material space, you know, one thing that I think people are generally opposed to is oxodegradables. It's, it's a chemical additive that can be put in any plastic product, pretty much. And it enables it to degrade in the marine environment or in, in the sun and things like that. But the problem is that while that's great, and many people thought that that would be kind of a panacea, right? Like that means we can keep making as much plastic as we want and it would just disappear into the ether, you know, after we were used with it, using it. But what ended up happening as they, after studies were done is it didn't dissolve completely. It just fractured to smaller and smaller. And it still just, it basically accelerates microplastics rather than actually disappearing forever. So that's an example of something that people are generally not in favor of in any way. On the positive side, I mean, there's a lot of confusion in this space, like biopolymers, compostable, biodegradable. A lot of it depends on the context of the material, what you're replacing it with. And, and the, the other issue too, is what the infrastructure that you're in the market that you're actually selling it into looks like. So it's great if you have a compostable product, but if it's not, if that person doesn't have access to an industrial compost facility, which is like what a material called polylactic acid requires, then it's, it's probably worse than a plastic product in the first place. When you think about things like multi-layered products, right, or where you have like, you know, a, you know a, an aluminum layer and the, or an alumina layer and a plastic layer and then a pigment or something like that, mm -hmm. is that, is that the kind of thing that one should generally steer away from either as a consumer buying products or as a, a packaging company or a brand owner? Yeah, it's a great example of the trade-offs. You know, 10 years ago when I was at Walmart, we were trying to get everything in flexibles because it would reduce the carbon footprint. You know, we were starting to put flexibles on every, in every category because you could fit more of it on a truck. And there was a huge carbon benefit from doing that. But the unintended, in, in the emerging markets, because I'm, I'm in Southeast Asia, I'm based in Singapore, you know, longer than that, 10, 20 years ago, sanitation has been a major challenge. And when you live on a dollar a day, you can't afford to buy a full bar of soap or, a, you know, liquid detergent or things like that. And so this huge innovation came about, which was single use sachets. They're like ketchup packets where people put soap in 
and buy their soap and you can buy it for a couple cents to get your daily need of soap and sanitary needs. And that was a huge social environmental health benefit 10, 15 years ago. But the unintended consequence of that is there's no value to that packaging and it's uh, all left behind and pretty much the most problematic when it comes to ocean plastic uh, because it just all ends up in the ocean and the environment, especially, and it's, dominates how people consume products in the Philippines and Indonesia um, and other places like that. So it is really problematic. And again, it kind of goes to like what you're trying to solve for and what the realities are in that market. But I think we're at a point now where we're, we're not getting away from multi-layer plastic packaging. There's some innovation happening where maybe you could get into single layer. Or... Yeah, I mean, Rob, you mentioned, I think, two different, both very important trade-offs. One is around, you know, the importance of getting stuff that is, you know, is cheap and available and affordable, whether it's about hygiene or healthcare medicine, you know, to, to people that need it. The other one is this, this question of, let's say, recycled content or recyclability versus emissions. And I think one of the, you know, two of the examples I found in that second space that are quite problematic. One is glass and the other is, let's say, aluminum or metal packaging, mm-hmm. because both of these, these, these substrates are, you know, potentially endlessly recyclable mm-hmm. if, you, if you use them right, but at the same time can be quite heavy on the emissions side. I mean, how would you, like, from an environmental perspective, how would you think about these? Like, is it, is it, does it always have to be a systemic macro view or can you actually say one of these is a good substrate or a bad substrate for a particular product? I tend to be material agnostic. I think, you know, there are going to be people who need to use aluminum and glass and paper forever. And I think we're locked into plastics as a global society and supply chain and as well. I think there are questions about what's the right application for such products and packaging. And, you know, you're starting to see uh, a lot of the brands experiment with saying like, oh, how can we use like a fiber-based bottle instead of a plastic bottle? But, you know, if you're a brand... You don't care what, whether you're in aluminum or plastic or, or whatever. I mean, in fact, Coke and Pepsi, you can buy cans all over the place, but people don't buy it, right? They buy the plastic bottles because they prefer it for a variety of reasons, convenience, price, things like that. So, you know, the brands are, I'd say, willing to use whatever material they can as long as customers are willing to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's always the catch, right? Like buy it and also potentially pay a bit extra for it where, where that's what's necessary to drive the economic model. One of the, the models that I found really interesting is reuse. And I think that there's a lot of great potential in that business model, especially if you're like a new brand entering a space. I think it's really exciting territory to, yep. to go into. And, and a friend of mine has, has recently started a a reusable toy business. So they kind of rent out the toy, like the old Netflix models where they send you a, uh, you know, a DVD. And his, his, so I, I think it's super exciting. And his, his company's called Whirly, just to give a little, little shout out. And then, you know, another friend is, is doing something similar in the clothing space with a company called Buy Rotation, where they, again, kind of rent out, you know, Airbnb style uh, people's clothing to each other. Yeah. How do you think about those sorts of business models from the perspective of either an investor or let's say a large corporate, like could a, you know, could a corporation the size of Walmart go into something in that space or is it always going to be a challenger model? So there's a lot of momentum and interest in that space. I'd say both from investors and from corporates, retailers and brands, you know, Rent the Runway is a unicorn, right? Like there's a lot of investors who kind of buy into that idea. Uh, 
very similar type of model, but not based on sustainability in any way, right? It's because it helps people uh, get better products, it saves them money, and you know, it fit this consumer need. And I think that's really where the rub is on these models, right? Is like when you start asking consumers to sacrifice to do something that's less convenient or more expensive and paying a premium, you end up shrinking the addressable market and yeah. the scaling problem. And you know, to your just to finish a thought, you know, Walmart is piloting a reusable a refillable system called El Gramo. And a lot of the brands have partnered up with Paracycle to do returnable and reusable systems with Loop. And, you know, they're, they're great niche pilots, you know, or marketing. One of the things that I really like about Loop, Rob, now that you've kind of mentioned it, is, is, is that it, it almost creates a more premium product in the reusable version, where you look at something like a, a Haagen-Dazs ice cream tub. And, you know, if it's, if it's a normal you know, let's say uh, pulp and paper based package kind of format, it looks a little, little more generic. Whereas if it's an aluminum kind of tub and it's, it, it, you don't really care if it has to be returned, it just feels more, more valuable or more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's like an interesting way to approach these things because normally you'd say, let me go kind of mass market and then move up, you know, further up the chain of value. But here it's, it's almost the reverse, yeah. which I think is an interesting way to approach this. Well, and you have to do that because it costs so much more money. <laughs> to use the reuse system, yeah. the logistics on that are crazy. You know, I mean, who's paying for that shipping? It's a customer ultimately. It's in that margin of that premium product. So the only way you can get it to work is if people are willing to pay that much, you know, 15, 20% more for that ice cream. And part of the heavy lift for Loop was coordinating that whole logistics chain and all the different partners that needed to be involved, right? And in, in making that sort of thing work. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I actually recently did a podcast with Tom from TerraCycle and there's nobody better at marketing in circularity than that guy. He's in, he's a wizard at it. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's a really exciting space, right? And I think it lends itself very well at the moment towards, you know, creating brand awareness. I asked him um, what his approach is and he said, we need to do, talk more about circularity and sustainability like Fox News than the New York Times. <laughs> and that's his approach yeah. to philosophy. That would work. And does that mean being kind of quite almost, almost an aggressive style and a kind of, you know, taking the sound bites and blowing them up or you know, the, the factoids and expanding them? Yeah, I guess there's a lot of ways, you know, more aggressive, more entertainment. What I'm kind of remembering also, Rob, is from that same piece of work, Stemming the Tide. One of the factoids that we, we brought out of that was this one-ton of plastic for every three ton of fish yeah. uh, in, in the ocean by, by I, I forget which year, 2025 or something like that. Yeah. And like there was so much around the definition of what we mean by, by fish in that. Like, was it fin fish? Was it some other format of fish? Right. And of course, the number can be more or less impressive depending on how you cut that, right? But at the end of the day, you're telling a story. It's, that's a great example, though. Like that stat continues to be, you know, uh, a key one that anybody talks about, you know, more, more plastic in the sea than fish by, I think it's 2050. But yeah. I, I should remember this from, from the, 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 the painstaking Excel sheet work that went into some of this. Rob, moving, moving on to something a little more, maybe close to, you know, companies like Walmart and the like, and, and how they think about this space. Would you say that circularity is, is basically a form of corporate altruism? where you know it's kind of the evolution of what we thought of as csr and there's a bit more bite to it 
Or do you think that there's actually the potential for real business value here where even mainstream large-scale corporations can actually generate you know, new revenue or, or, or savings that go to the bottom line by doing this right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's all flavors, right? And so, you know, we're investors. So we're investing for a financial return. And that's because I believe, you know, that investing in circularity and recycling has that potential and, and that promise. And that's what we tell our investors. And that's how we operate our due diligence and, and decision making. Um, but certainly there are other forms of it as well, where you do have CSR type programs that are more focused on, you know, reputation than actual scale and impact. And they're not mutually exclusive. You know, the, those types of projects and a loop may even be an example of that, right? Like how big and sc how scalable is that? But it creates so much potential and, and as inspiration and aspiration. And, you know, we have been talking about a reuse model for these types of products for 10, 20 years, and they did it first and they were able to show what's possible. And that, I think, changes the game. Yeah. And one of the examples that I really like is is Lush Cosmetics based out of the UK, where, you know, they're famous for their packaging free products. Like you go into a Lush store and you see all these bath bombs and soaps kind of sitting there, you know, very aromatic and, and quite appealing. And, you know, that actually seemed to have come out of a cost saving measure early in their history, where they found that packaging was just a large share of the, of the cost of the product. And if they remove it, they can they can save quite a bit yeah. uh, on the product. But also it, it brings additional value. It's, it's better for the environment. The consumers like it more. So there's just all these points that you can hit, which I think ends up being quite interesting. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, a lot of the companies we're investing in are recycling operators in India and Indonesia. And, you know, we often get asked what, like, how are you going to make any money doing that? Doesn't recycling lose money? Recycling doesn't work. And, you know, we've been able to identify and partner with companies that are profitable today, right? They've been operating for 10 or 20 years. I mean, there's a lot of recyclers who have become quite successful in their business and uh, continue to be successful. But the opportunity now is growth and scale, right? Because I think the challenge is it's, it's working in small systems and really to drive the impact we want, both on the financial side and the um, environmental side, we need to start thinking at a much bigger scale. And Rob, this might be a bit of a leading question, but do you think that companies need to distinguish between use of recycled content and recyclability of the product? Because today you see a lot of products that kind of have, uh, you know, this is this is made from 50% recycled PET, you know, or, or this is kind of fully recyclable where it's, it's, it's slightly more theoretic that each of the individual materials used could be recycled. Like, how do you, how do you think about maybe quantifying that or measuring that or, or thinking about that from a, you know, what factors are important perspective? I mean, you know, it's a problem that when you have a package and you're a consumer, you want to know what to do with it. You kind of need a magic decoder ring to know what bin to put it in, right? Like that yeah. is just a failure, you know, a design failure from the get-go. And it's, it, it, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to improve consumer communication on package. My kind of view on this though, and this might come from my Walmart perspective as well, is like, that's a losing battle. Like ultimately, if you're trying to get people to change their behavior, you need to make it easier for them. And educating them about the difference between PET and PE and PP and, you know, some of the things we're talking about, I think is difficult to do for millions and hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. And if, 
if I'm going to try and drive change, I'd rather influence a million recyclers than a billion people, right? And I think that's some of the, the challenges that we have is like, how do you make this easier for people at scale? Yeah. I, I think also because there's the, the potential to create disruption in the wrong way here, where what I'm thinking of is one of the things that I've noticed is that in the waste stream, the pet is actually one of the more valuable components of that stream. Yes. And if you were to strip out all of the pet, then actually there's probably no value for anyone in doing anything with most of what's left. And, you know, the, the, the PET bottles are what's iconic for consumers to think about as plastic waste. Yes. But if everyone just switches over to something else, actually you probably make the problem with the sachets and all of that stuff worse. It's true. And we've seen that happen uh, a lot of places. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola is kind of public enemy number one on a lot of this ocean plastic stuff. And it's because uh, their bottle is so iconic. So when people are looking at what the plastic is in the ocean, like everyone recognizes the Coke bottle, but nobody recognizes this random sachet that may or may not be made by Unilever or Procter and Gamble or Colgate or whoever, because it's, you know, not as I, but you know, there's, there's actually some examples of this in the U S where you have States that have bottle bills, which basically means that there's that deposit on it and it incentivizes people to bring those bottles back to the grocery store or a reverse vending machine. And so what that does in those states is it creates a much higher quality and higher volume of PET and aluminum that's available for recycling, which is great. But the rest of the curbside recycling programs is everything else that they put on their, in their bins at home are much less value because you've taken the most valuable materials out of it. And so then they're just really paper recycling and everything else is, is landfilled or incinerated. Yeah. So that, it's one of the reasons why we talk a lot about you can't just solve for one type of plastic or one resin. And it also goes to a little bit of my theory, you know, our conversation before about like being a material agnostic, like all these materials are out there. Um, we need to solve for the entire waste stream and optimize yeah. and monetize the entire waste stream because it sh it'll change too. Like anything we're working on today, like five, 10 years from now, it's going to look a lot different. There's going to be new in packaging innovation happening all the time. So you need to really think about the being holistic in your solutions. And Rob, just on that note, what are some examples of design choices that businesses can make that are sort of in that sweet spot of easy, profitable, and sustainable? I mean, maybe anything you've invested in or, or anything you've come across as a, you know, as, as a simple kind of switch or adjustment, if possible, that can make things a bit easier to manage. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I'm inclined to say that's almost an incompatible trinity. <laughs> you can only have two. You know, a lot of those things have happened and have been going under the name of like more eco-efficiency over the last 20 years, you know, packaging, lightweighting, cube optimization, some of those logistics plays and, you know, the packaging plays that we were talking about earlier really hit those, hit those targets, right? Like it's, and the reason they've been done, it's been successfully executed is it fits within the model of, of consumerism and production at scale, which is, is saving costs. I think the challenge, you know, that we're trying to focus on are like, how do you invest capital in a way that hit those marks and put products forward that are, by investing that capital up front, you can start to get that easy and profitable and sustainable at the same time over time. And we're looking at one company right now that has, develops phase change materials, which is a type of material that can be used in the cold chain. And instead of just styrofoam, which you know, keeps temperatures locked in as long as possible, Phase change materials operate more like a thermal battery, which allow you to be much more precise 
and have a longer time of maintaining temperature than just an insulation would. And so by deploying this type of material, you can actually have massive savings from energy and greenhouse gases in the cold chain, which would reduce your food waste, would reduce your food waste packaging that's lost along the way and all of your energy use along the way. But the company we're looking at has actually developed a bio-based, biopolymer-based phase change material that has a lower carbon footprint than any of its competitors and higher performance because of this unique mix of materials that they're using to create it. So it's kind of an example where we're looking at using this mentality of finding things that are more circular at a supply, in a supply chain that you might not think of as being circular, but using that as a lens to finding these investment opportunities. I think that's a fantastic example. I mean, do you see a lot of these kind of, it looks like there's a coordination activity going on between the brand owner, the logistics partner, and the packaging partner. This sort of coordination activity, is that a trend you really see you know, getting stronger going forward? And would you say it's probably something around procurement teams connecting with commercial teams, connecting with sustainability teams? Like how do companies get that going and accelerate it? I do think it's uh, incredibly important in the circular economy and the opportunities we're looking at. And I also think it's really hard because, you know, those groups are not used to working with each other. They're only used to working with that one group next in the chain or next, you know, the person they're selling to or supplying to. And to break through that can be really challenging. I think the, the lesson in there is like, you have to have a compel, you have to be able to hit multiple notes from multiple stakeholders. And so when you're selling to the procurement guy, have a win for the procurement guy. But then once they see that they've got their win and it's they're gonna be happy with that and meets their needs and they bring their sustainability person in, have a win for the sustainability person too. And so being able to be flexible on your sales pitch and your value contribution is a really important way to, to build that kind of collaboration across the value chain. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found while I was at McKinsey was my my clients who were chief sustainability officers would ask me, what exactly does this role need to involve? Like, what exactly am I doing? Am I just process managing lots of other parts of the business because I don't have a P&L and actually everything I'm committing to someone else needs to go and execute on? And, and I think that's, that's probably true in, 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 for a lot of that work. At the same time, I think there is this element of vertical and horizontal collaboration where it's collaborating with others in your value chain, whether it's your suppliers, your logistics partners, your your customers, your distributors, uh, but also this kind of horizontal collaboration where it's other people in your industry who, who probably also need the same unlocks uh, that you do. And maybe you need to collaborate on making a new packaging system work or designing yeah. a new logistics format. So, yeah. so I, I think there's definitely a lot of need for that going forward. And I, I can see how particularly with this sort of system-wide change that we're talking about with circularity, that kind of becomes, you know, very necessary. One of the questions that we're getting asked at Altruistic is how we think about end of life and this whole cradle to cradle topic. And, mm -hmm. you know, particularly we focus really heavily right now on, on carbon emissions and carbon emissions measuring and monitoring and reporting. And if you think about scope three within that, which is all your indirects, it, it's already quite difficult thinking about that looking backwards into the supply chain, looking forwards and figuring out what consumers are doing with the product after they've bought it and yeah. actually finding a way to measure that or assume that or proxy that is, let's say, very interesting for want of a better word. I would call um, it diabolical. 
<laughs> How do you think about that? Like, is is there a way to to do that? Is there a way that is credible? Do you think it's a bit of a red herring and, and actually, I mean, yeah. like, how, how do you approach that kind of thing? It's a live topic for us. And it's a, it's a debate we're having because we are, you know, we've invested about 40 million into companies across South and Southeast Asia to prevent plastic pollution. But, you know, how much plastic pollution and how do we know? And there's different schools of thought. Right. Like one school of thought is the only way you can know is if you get like a third party certifier coming in and auditing the whole thing. And uh, then the problem is, well, there isn't a third party standard out there, let alone a certifier who is able to do that. So I can't even tell you how much it would cost because there's nobody to even get a quote from today. So, you know, my personal philosophy on this has and this comes from my days at Walmart, too, is never let the measurement get in the way of the impact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that one of the things that we talk about is directionally right, which is as long as it's kind of, you know, order of magnitude in the right place and the relationships or ratios to different things are right, you're probably good enough to get going. Yeah, it's accurate, not precise is another balancing act. But, you know, the problem is like when you start making claims publicly and you're a large multinational brand, like nobody gives you style points for that. Right. Like yeah. they, you're just ex, you're just exposed when you start saying, like, how much plastic pollution have we prevented? You know, it's directionally accurate, doesn't cut it for some stakeholders. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of tolerance there. Our my other view on that is like transparency is the only way to go. So just tell everybody exactly how you did it and what assumptions you took. And like, yeah, they weren't the best. We know where there were challenges. And if you've got a better assumption, let us know and we'll improve. And like yeah. put it forward and move move on. <laughs> one of the one of the 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 stimuli for more precision, I think, is this movement towards carbon taxes, carbon import tariffs, and you see the corresponding kind of thrust towards carbon pricing in corporations. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is certainly a, a need and almost an urgency to again at least get accurate, if not precise, in the carbon space. I wonder if you see this sort of thing coming on the ocean plastic front as well, where, you know, again, precision being a long way off, there might still be some sort of, a, I'm not going to say punitive, but, you know, some sort of a, a quantifiable penalty almost for, for getting it wrong that pushes people to be more accurate. So plastic credits are a thing that have, are being developed right now. And it's all being modeled on carbon credits. In fact, it's the same people who used to do carbon credits or have been doing carbon credits, and they're looking to expand into, you know, plastic credits. There's a lot of apples and oranges in terms of the comparisons there. But yeah, I mean, I think it's probably on that trajectory. But, you know, it took us probably 20 years of carbon credit discussions to get to the point where we are now to have those, the conversations you're talking about. And so I think that plastic credits are probably further behind. And if you think about then this, you know, ESG is a term that, you know, at at Altruistic, we basically have two types of customers. One is the type that think ESG is a a really misleading term that they would rather you just never used because they're they're businesses, they're operational teams, and they just don't know what to do with ESG. It kind of sprawls across, you know, 15 different functions in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is investors who are, are very comfortable and very used to thinking about ESG from a compliance and a risk perspective. Yes. And actually, if you talk about sustainability and carbon emissions, you're too niche and too, too yeah. specific. When you think about ESG, 
like, is there a way to normalize or unify all of the different things so that you know whether you're ESG plus or minus or whether you're in the right ballpark? And then my related question was going to be, as you think about these plastic credits, is that just a, a, another directional trend that you'd see, you know, all of this ESG broader space heading towards? Or do you think that this is just all going to be fragmented and treated differently? It's a really good question. You know, the financial industry took hold of ESG and it's now gotten to the point where like it's pretty well indoctrinated in in the lexicon of finance. Whereas corporate did not drive ESG and they use different terminology. I think in my view, they're kind of talking about the same things. They're just sort of like different frameworks for it. So I've always tried to not let the vocabulary, you know, debate people on the vocabulary. And instead, it's more about interoperability than it is trying to create, you know, one scheme to rule them all. I think from the, from the corporate standpoint, there's also a bit of a distinction between stuff that would normally sit within HR, let's say, like diversity, inclusion, you know, stuff that might sit within, let's say, risk or external affairs, like community relationships transparency, and then the more traditional sustainability type of territory around, you know, environmental metrics. Mm -hmm. And would you say that actually, they kind of just belong in separate places, because they're so different that there's no value in thinking about them in the same way? Or do you think there is some ability to aggregate as an investor, for instance, or a business operator? Yeah, I mean, well, as an investor, you know, you don't really care necessarily how the S is working with the G is working with the E. You want to make sure that they're all happening in the right way for that investment, right? That's why you want to think about it at a macro level. But as you're operating in the business, you know, there are practical realities about the work, the everyday work and how things fit together and don't. You know, I've worked across and you have too, like many dozens of companies. And I found that every single one pretty much organizes this work differently. And it's a mix of like, legacy who ran it three years ago was a chief legal officer was really passionate about a part of it took ownership of it and now it sits in legal and like has no business being there but like that's where it is and i think it just is it really depends on the culture of each company and what what makes the most sense for how those things can fit together and it evolves too you know they, they create a new chief sustainability or chief something officer and it all folds together in a reorg but wait three years and it'll uh, change again. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, I find for me at least, there are two ways that I find helpful to think about it. One is that I, I think every company is is basically you know different to the extent that it's in a specific sector or a specific geography, and different things will matter for different reasons based on where it sits in that kind of, you know, in, in those cells. And the other is, I think there's a difference between, let's say, externalities and internalities, where internalities is, a, is, a, is an actual word, but between those two, right, where you think about everything that is, you know, like happening in the outside world from your business perspective, the water, the environment, but also, frankly, maybe the community affairs and your impact on the world outside the immediate scope of yeah. your business. And then there's stuff that is actually internal. And there I think about, you know, a lot of the diversity, inclusion, you know, sort of stuff, and even the board incumbency and those kind of metrics. And I think that thinking about it in those terms, I find to be more, maybe a more useful heuristic. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely, that's really helpful. I did those roles for about 10 years and I was in one company 
that had the, the function really sit within the chief operating officer. And that was like really close to the business, right? And we were able, we were in the chief operating officer's organization that gave us the right type of engagement with the business, do the work that we needed to do. But we were disconnected from this, the uh, CEO and like his priorities necessarily in terms of the public, the outside pieces. And the outside pieces ended up being much more PR oriented. When I went to Walmart, they have it all in corporate affairs. And, but for that culture, having big announcements and milestones was an incredibly effective way to organize and get momentum, much more so than slogging it away on the operational side. And yeah. so the cultures of the businesses were different and how you could be effective, you know, doing big splashy things at the, at the company. It was, it was called Brown Foreman. They make Jack Daniels, pretty conservative company. They weren't looking for big splashy things. Right. They that's wasn't how they made decisions. That wasn't how they move forward on big things. Right. It was more operationally focused. So it does. I think it does depend on the culture of the company. For sure. Rob, thank you so much for for joining us for this. It's been a fantastic and, and super fascinating conversation that I'm sure will be really interesting for all our listeners. I, I have one final question uh, for you just to kind of end off, which is. As you think about sustainability in 2021, and I know you've written about this also, uh, as you think about sustainability in 2021, what is one word you would use to describe how you feel about it? Depends how I'm feeling. I guess, <laughs> you know, at a Friday afternoon when we're recording this, I feel pretty hopeful. I've got a weekend ahead of me. I feel like vaccines are coming. I feel hopeful. <laughs> Fantastic. I think that's an that's a, a upbeat note for us to end on, Rob. Thank you so much once again. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Seth.